Hello, Ash. Uh, it's been a little uh, while, I think three weeks since our last recording. It's after Thanksgiving. I hope you're doing great, and I hope you had a, a wonderful Thanksgiving uh, weekend. Yeah, I did. Thanks, Gary. Uh, yeah, happy Thanksgiving to you, too. This is it's always been one of my favorite holidays of the year, yes. uh, just because there's a lot less to to do, but you can just focus on hanging out with people mm -hmm. all day, and it's just a nice one. So, uh, yeah, we had a we had a good one here. We had a sick kid on our hands, uh, but we survived it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you have to if you have to deal with a sick kid, Thanksgiving is at least maybe a little bit better than Christmas because then you have all the all the other hyper activity with presents, and like that's the worst worst time to feel bad because mm -hmm. you see all the excitement of opening presents and yet you're not feeling fun so there's never a good time to get sick though <laughs> no i guess not but yeah it's a, a you know kind of if we were gonna do it honestly in some ways i'm glad it happened over the holiday as opposed to during school right? time and we're still getting into oh. that routine <laughs> it's yeah that's always a challenge um but i'm i'm glad you were able to have a, a, a mostly relaxing thanksgiving ours was ours was similar it was too much food even though uh even though we you know know that going in so it was definitely nap time afterwards there was actually a question mark of whether or not we'd even get the third the turkey thaw in time because as we were talking before the the podcast started finding things on store shelves is, is kind of like a, a, a guess, a random chance. Um, and so there was a, there were a few days where getting a Turkey was like a question mark <laughs> and we found one at the last minute, but it was huge. It was like 21 pounds and there's three of us. Um, so we didn't need 21 pounds. So some of it's gotten frozen, but it's like when we open it up to start cooking, it's like, is it thought enough? Will it get done in time? It did. But, um, it was, it was a open question for a little while. <laughs> Yeah, that's classic. We've we've been in that situation quite a few times, actually. Um, yeah, we used to when we lived in Japan, we used to host uh, Thanksgiving for a lot of our friends and family there, mm -hmm. and uh, that would require a trip to Costco. But we didn't have a car, so like, yeah, Co Costco in Japan. By the way, if you're ever there, don't don't go out of your way to go to a Costco, please. But like <laughs> at the same time, like it's interesting because it's I always likened it to like walking into an embassy. Whereas like as soon as you're past the gate, suddenly you're in the other country. So mm -hmm. like going into a Costco in Osaka was like returning to America in some strange ways where it's like, oh, wow, there's a turkey. I haven't seen one of those in a long time. Like all, all of the <laughs> things were just like you'd buy all the stuff in bulk that you would, you know, even if you went to a Costco here in the U.S. Um, but a lot of times since it required a special trip, we wouldn't always get there in time to like fully sufficiently let that turkey thaw out, which always takes longer <laughs> than I expect. Yes, yes. But it was, it, I, I will say, even though it was a, a late turkey for us, it was a very delicious one. So um, already uh, we, we made some turkey soup out of it and some um, uh, other various things to, to, to change it up a little bit. But it was it was a it was a good weekend. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and now feeling nice and refreshed and like you said, it's it's been a few weeks since we last recorded, and uh, I had a little bit of follow up just to mm -hmm. share from. I don't think so. The last episode was about Decker, and Decker. that was about three weeks ago, I think. Yes. How could I already forget the name of Decker? I was <laughs> I was gonna go straight and call it Hypercard, and then I was like, that's not it. Um, to its credit, that's a, that's an awful good thing if you go straight to Hypercard. That that shows how accurate a representation it is. <laughs> that's true. In my mental, like in my mind, it really does kind of mess with. <laughs> it kind of overwrites some of the Hypercard memories in odd ways. So yes. 
the last time, yeah, we talked, we went did that deep dive into Decker. That was super fun. Um, yes. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed, but I did eventually get to uh, uploading my little deck on uh, Netlify as well, which was as easy as you made it sound. I was I was kind of shocked actually. It's just like drag and drop a file and you're done. And then it, it's there. It's like it's it's it is like the um, uh, epitome of single file hosting. Like that, that that's as easy as it should be. And I'm glad that there is a so- solution out there that makes it that simple. Yeah, definitely keeping that one in my belt from now on when I need it. Um, but two episodes ago, then we did a deep dive on something called OAS tools, mm-hmm. uh, which help you bootstrap your open API document and uh, open API document based server in Node.js. So uh, without regurgitating that entire episode, uh, one of the things that we talked a lot about was, um, you know, building your spec, not from just building the spec straight out, but starting with what was called an entity resource file Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of OAS tools, that's what they call it. So I, I wrote a blog post that's more of a deep dive on how to create that entity resource file if you already have data stored in say you know some like sqlite or sql based um, database um so I'll, I'll share the link in the show notes to that but i think uh one of the cool things there too is it gets into like let's say if i have a sqlite database sitting somewhere in my disk mm-hmm. so i can interact with that through node.js uh, and there's lots of ways to do that so you know uh, sometimes we think about having an ORM layer, which is kind of like a nice sort of more node friendly way to interact with your database. So if you've ever used like MongoDB ch- mm-hmm. in in a node environment, chances are you've used Mongoose as that inter, inter uh, how do you say, like interstitial layer or whatever, mm-hmm. that sort of communication layer between the node application and the database um, for SQL style databases in the past, I've always gone to something called SQLize. Um, But these days, there's another uh, popular ORM out there called Prisma. And I'm I'm sure there's lots of ORMs, but Prisma seems to be in particular picking up just tons of steam. Uh, So I spent some time uh, kind of in the context of using OAS tools saying, okay, well, if I'm going to use OAS tools to build an API, Said, OP, said API eventually wants to hit a database to get some data right. or store some data or whatever. So um, what's an easy way to make that happen if I'm using a SQL style database? Well, Prisma is uh, really just hot in, in that space right now. So I checked it out. And one other just kind of piece of follow up there uh, is, you know, in addition to the blog post that I wrote, there's also this really cool thing um, that I found on YouTube, which is just like a 60 minute tour of Prisma. So um, I found it even consumable in less than 60 minutes where just put it on <laughs> fast play. Because like if you've done some of this stuff before, you, you right. pretty much know what you want and what feature sets probably going to be available. The question is how to set it up and how to access those features. So uh, anyways, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. It's just, I think it's called Learn Prisma in 60 Minutes. And uh, if I can find the name of the account, I'll tell you. Uh, and now I, I don't, I, I've lost that tab, so I'm not going to go <laughs> hunting for it now. But uh, anyways, Too many it'll tabs. be at the links. Yeah, who, whoever it was that did this, I just, hats off to you. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't have your name off the top of my head here. Uh, but it was uh, really good stuff. I guess I could click the link. Um, 
Here we go. So the name of the account is called on on YouTube is called Web Dev Simplified. So I'm oh not, yeah, I've yeah, come across sure. a few of theirs in the past. They're always really good. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So I don't know who the name of the person uh, doing this is. So I guess I should have looked at it first. But <laughs> anyways, just go check it out if you're if you're curious about uh, Prisma uh, and just kind of getting a, a quick sort of tour de force of like again configuring concepts. And ultimately, like how to access certain features. Mm-hmm. Um, but between kind of digging into Prisma and then also building that entity resource file, I think there's some really cool stuff that uh, you can check out with these two links uh, here in the show notes. That sounds really cool, and and definitely, um, I, I love I love that you've mentioned both of those things because that's definitely a video I want to go watch because um, Prisma looks really really cool. Um, and um, I'm browsing browsing your blog post right now, and um, I must say it looks very comprehensive. So it looks it, it looks like it is a um you could follow it step by step in a in a nice easy way and get and get the desired output. So that's really cool. Yeah, hopefully so. I mean it's basically just, you know, get a single instance of a certain type of entity stored in your database and write that to disk and you just re- you know, rinse and repeat for each one um mm-hmm. and store it all into a single JSON file. So um, hopefully it's a nice, easy landing. Um, cause I'll, I'll say that that's one part of the OAS tools documentation that was, you know, they kind of, they show you how to do it from scratch by writing your own entity into a file, right? which is, you know, a great getting started, but it, do, it doesn't really help you connect, you know, super in a, in a very streamlined way into a real world scenario where, mm-hmm. Hey, I've already got a database. What do I do here? Um, but they do they do have a really good guide on how to set up OAS tools with Prisma in the OAS tools uh, documentation. So that that's also, I'll, I'll try to grab a link for that and and throw it in here as well. Yeah. Now, given our previous conversations and episodes, I do have to ask how much of GitHub Copilot did you use to write the blog post? Oh man. (laughs) I, I don't even remember. That was such a good question. I, I don't remember anymore, but I'll tell you that it's, I keep it on. For this one, I feel like it may have been. Remember, we talked about one of the interesting things is like one one signal that you are creating something that is new mm-hmm. slash potentially a value, but mostly just pretty new, anyways. In other words, you are on the edge of known things that have been written about. Is if GitHub Copilot can't help you, <laughs> and if I remember correctly, this was one of those blog posts where. Uh, you know, there there were some things it would try to help with, and occasionally it'll it'll actually guess at stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So um, for this blog post, I, I don't know that it could actually it actually helped. Um, one of the things uh, I had a uh, interview, like a, a kind of like a press interview, not too long ago. Maybe it was like last week actually, and I was kind of prepping some notes for that in advance, and it was really interesting because like. Um, let's say you and I in the, when we did that episode, Mm -hmm. a few episodes back where we were using GitHub Copilot to basically (laughs) write a JavaScript tutorial on the fly. And it was amazing. It was awesome. It's very procedural, right? Yes. So let's say, for example, instead of that, you're writing talking points. I think in particular, I was there to kind of talk to a reporter about, uh, where we think developer experience is going and why Mm -hmm. it's suddenly getting the focus that it's getting. Because, right. you know, developers has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. So why is de- de- developer experience or DevX or DX or whatever you call it, like, why is that such a 
you know, something that we talk about so much this mm-hmm. last, you know, say three to five years. So anyways, uh, as I'm just kind of in VS code where I, I tend to take notes and I was kind of putting together some my thoughts and talking points. Uh, one thing that became really clear to me was like, uh, let's say, for example, you were going to write the sentence and this is contrived. So you may not right. be able to repeat this specifically, but um, if you were thinking of a sentence like, you know, developer experience is growing in importance because it will try to fill that in with like um, sort of all reasoning that you might put into your sophomore, uh, you know, in college, like <laughs> essay, like it's all yeah. very sort of <laughs> hand wavy, you know, I don't know if it's adjectives or it's kind of like, if are, are these facts kind of facts, their uh, opinions masquerading as facts and, and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. Um, and I, I saw a couple of times where I was going to refer to, you know, the one time that I thought, wow, this is sort of amazing in terms of putting together thoughts and opinions was um, I was going to quote some Stack Overflow survey uh, results around, for example, and I don't remember the the hard numbers, but I think like last time they asked if developers have influence in purchasing mm. was in 2020. And I think people at the time, let's say it was like 50% said yes. Right. Well, they asked it again this year. They skipped a year, but they asked it again in 2022 and it had jumped by 10 or 20%. Again, don't quote me on the figures. I don't remember. But either way, uh, when I started, when I got down into like quoting the Stack Overflow survey, if I remember correctly, it was actually pulling the numbers correctly. What? Um, <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. So at that point, remember how we talked <laughs> about this? Yes. It's like, in code, for example, GitHub Copilot puts you, you are the, who is the copilot? And in some ways, it the human in, mm-hmm. becomes the copilot where now you're fact checking. Okay, did you get the syntax right? Is this actually what I was wanting to write? Or in that kind of thing. In prose, it's the same thing. So GitHub Copilot finished my sentence based on supposedly some external data in the form of this Stack Overflow survey. Now, what am I doing? I'm the fact checker. I'm the co- I'm I'm the copilot. And yes. I, I didn't think when I signed up for GitHub Copilot that what it meant was I'm going to be copiloting for GitHub. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. And it's it's definitely an entirely different um um feeling to be in. It's like, oh, out pops this statistic, and now I have to go, oh, is it right? Is that accurate? And go fact checking and and, and doing the deep dive to, to make sure that it is actually telling the truth. That's, that's so cool though, that, it, that are cool. And, and slightly like, um, like I wouldn't have expected it since that was recent um, for it to have even been able to pick up that and pull in the, that, that data, but that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's an interesting thought. So, you know, I think for me, like anytime I'm in VS code, which is uh, pretty much anytime I'm writing something, um, be it code or otherwise, uh, you know, basic notes or writing a blog post. Like I, I have VS code open and therefore GitHub copilot is turned on. Uh, but yeah, in, in this way, one of the things that made me feel good in, in, in a small way about writing this blog post was GitHub copilot was struggling to help me with it. Mm-hmm. And that means maybe I'm at the edge of something and that feels nice. Now, right. this is a very niche problem that, you know, few people will have. I don't know how popular OAS tools is, but I have to assume it's, uh, you know, one of the smaller tools out there right now. Um, at the same time, if I've been able to contribute to helping somebody kind of figure that first run experience out, which, you know, kind of had me 
sort of scratching my head momentarily. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that being a stumbling block for someone else. So hopefully that helps in some ways. Yeah. And I haven't done it for, you know, in this particular case, but there's been very many times where um, I have in my developer experience appreciated posts exactly like that because you run into some some hiccup that maybe it's obvious to everyone else as they're reading through the docs or they're taking a different a more happier path or what have you and then there's this blog post out there that says do this and it's like this is awesome this this keeps me going rather than you know finding a cliff that i can't actually go over so um i I, that's always valuable i think yeah one of the things that i've so now that we're doing this podcast more and more and then occasionally that sparks, you know, these little outside sort of things, be it we made Decker decks or, you know, I wrote a blog post about something you and I spoke about or whatever it is. Um, you know, it makes me wonder like what's kind of fair game or not fair game necessarily, but like I, I kind of wanted to reach out to the maintainers of OAS tools mm-hmm. just to say like, Hey, I don't know if this is useful, but check it out. But I don't, I don't want to, I don't know. I'm being oddly shy about this. I'm sort of like, I don't know if they want to see it or not. So I haven't shared it yet. <laughs> Figuring out that etiquette, but I, I am sure they would love to see it. I, I don't know about you, but uh, anytime that I have done any degree of open source and someone's come back and said, Ooh, this is, you know, either they're giving feedback or really they're giving contribution or they're saying, this is awesome. This solved X, Y, Z problem. It's like, that always makes my day. I can't speak for, for, the the maintainers of that project but it always makes my day yeah it's fair point maybe i'll find a good way to just say hey we talked (laughs) about your thing and hopefully (laughs) hopefully i i made it sound great because i'm a huge (laughs) fan i actually spend a lot of time with it Um, Mm, absolutely yeah uh so i and you know speaking of that like that that was actually sort of like behind the scenes I'm, i'm noodling on something right now that's you know just kind of for fun in my spare time where i the whole idea there was that i had like a database of a few things that I wanted to expose via an API mm-hmm. and OAS tools makes all of that. Basically you have the database, create your entity file, see my blog post for how to do that. And then you run OAS tools on top of that entity file and that'll spit out a Node.js server uh, API server. And so more or less you have your backend. Now there's a lot of, you know, other bells and whistles you need to add into that um, over time um, as you're hacking. But that that really gets you pretty far just from the start. Um, and so that leads me to <laughs> where I he hesitantly says the front end. Um, so <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like being on the API side of things myself and on the server side. Uh, and front end is something that Occasionally, I felt like I have kind of a handle on and then I don't spend much time on it for different reasons, just as practice in general. And then I come back a couple of years later and everything is different. Everything mm-hmm. is different and more. It's not just different. There's more of it. And, oh, and so goodness. I, I, I kind of always <laughs> I go back to a time where I don't remember what year it was when React 16.8 was released. But I think mm-hmm. that was the release where uh, hooks came into being and React sort of started to walk back from uh, class syntax. Yeah, class-based components. Yes, thank you. So, and it, so I thought, okay, cool. This might be a good inflection point for me to jump back into React. I hadn't seen it in a little while at that point even. 
and it just felt <laughs> to get like a rectangle on the page just felt like i was loading dependency and dependency and like in npm installing all of npm and i don't know i, I have a bunch of like none of these complaints are well informed or unique uh so you know it was just one of those things where every time i did it i'm just like why and now i had right. to like, relearn all of these things and uh so i remember at work bumping into you in the kitchen and I'm like react 16 point as if you were, I was like, why, why is it like this Carrie? As if you were making all of this happen. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, and, and I was asking myself the very same questions as why is it like this? I liked class-based component just fine. <laughs> I was happy. <laughs> and fast forward years later, I, I, I'm not even going to guess what version of react we're on. Um, but I thought, okay, so back then, and even before that, I considered myself relatively um, good at or uh, functionally skilled at Bootstrap, mm -hmm. uh, particularly uh, Bootstrap 3, which is like a, a component-based CSS framework that I think every website <laughs> used, you know, sort of in the oh, yes. <laughs> 2013 to 20, I don't know, 16, 17 range. Um, I'm not, it's I'm, still a go-to for, for a lot of projects. Sure. Yeah. And and for good reason. I mean, one of the things is like if you it gave you just enough of the right tools where someone like me who like is appreciates a great front end, but don't doesn't get a lot of enjoyment out of like spending much time on that part of the stack, if mm -hmm. I'm honest, um, it, it gives you just enough tools to get something functionally up. And that's yeah. why I think um, you did start to see a lot of websites that looked exactly like the bootstrap <laughs> documentation because you can just like pull these components into mm -hmm. it and it's like oh finally i just have something in the browser it is responsive mm -hmm. i remember the first time i got like it takes the, all those boxes <laughs> and images mm -hmm. uh, bootstrap 3 i don't recall if it was great at doing that with video um these days i think that's more of a solved problem um mm -hmm. but anyways um yeah years later here we are and you know bootstrap is on version 5 Mm -hmm. And it's a different beast, um, I think, largely based on Flexbox. And therefore, there's some different things you got to learn. The components are different in certain ways. Uh, so I had to ask myself this question. If I'm going to put a front end, like build a front end app around this little toy API that I've been making. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the front end stack, right? You right. think of like, sometimes I think there was a long time ago where I thought of a full stack app as being like, you know, it's the full st <laughs> like from database to front end like that was like to browse to client that was the full stack but mm -hmm. the reality is these days like you're gonna have a full stack at each layer of like um your app depending on how you build it so like i guess what i mean is on the front end like you've got to pick uh kind of like what's your view framework yeah if i'm so this is where you're selecting the the svelte or the view vue or the reacts or whatever else of the world like mm -hmm. you gotta pick one of those apparently you also it's you, you need to pick this other sort of layer of things i don't even know what to call it right now but it's sort of like the infrastructure of the front end i ended up landing on something called vit um v-i-t-e i i could not explain that part of it to you right now if I tried. Um, I it, Interestingly enough, I think that used to be view specific and now it handles React as well. So I'm kind of definitely displaying some ignorance on this part of things right now, but sometimes you just need to focus on one area and right, then exactly. learn, learn down the stack from there. So 
Anyways. Oh, yes. I, I just saw the page. And yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so that's the infrastructure piece. And then there's the sort of like, what's your view library? And mm-hmm. React being the more famous one of those. And then at some point, you're probably going to end up picking a CSF framework if you're not going to write your own, which I don't want to do that. So, uh, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> I do not. So, um, I had a challenge once where we had to, in the Bootstrap three days, where we were like asked to um, build our own version of Bootstrap three, essentially. And I, I did just enough of that to be like, yeah, that's why Bootstrap exists. I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> so, these days, like it, and again, this is all new territory for me. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. saying all this stuff with the caveat that I'm, I'm talking about this out loud as I'm learning it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for people who are in depth in this stuff, they may be screaming at like how wrong I am about some things. I don't know. And for people like me who are kind of like approaching this more from a backend centric world, um, you know, I'm mostly just hoping to shine a light on things that you could be looking at. Right. Uh, because the, the hardest part of all of it is like, okay, so you want a front end application. Now what? And that's a really hard question to answer um, man. because of all the pieces. So mm-hmm. um, on the CSS front, I thought today we could just kind of like talk a little bit about this sort of new bifurcation of CSS frameworks, mm-hmm. specifically around what is known as now known as component first frameworks like Bootstrap mm-hmm. or utility based frameworks like Tailwind. Mm, and those were basically my two options as I was kind of mm-hmm. digging into this. But I'm curious, uh, you know, had a lot to say about just kind of setting the stage here. But is this, you know, I, you work a lot in that world anyways, just from your 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 day job <laughs> and building these component frameworks. <laughs> but it's a different sort of thing. I, I don't know, like, if you've spent a lot of time with CSS frameworks of any ilk and, and what your kind of high level sort of experience and maybe preferences are there. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly have done a fair share of bootstrap in the past and um, have I I am far more familiar with with doing things on the React side of things, um, given um, that was a lot of my day job for a while. Um, And so like how it intersects with views felt all these other things, you know, discounting that at the moment, but very much. on the React side of thing, always looking for some 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 how how do these frameworks like a CSS framework? If I'm pulling it in, that's always kind of my lens is how do I in pull it into a React world? Um, so even on some personal projects, um, and these are by no means like a, like a pulling in a full boot, Bootstrap, but one of my personal projects that I that I was actually trying to get back into now that I'm on sabbatical for this month um, is my old uh, Retroputer, um, you know, fake. 8-bit emulated machine that never existed. And it has some um, framework in it that makes it easy to do panels in in, in the browser. So like, and, and by panels, I mean like being able to put um, resizable areas next to each other and dock them and undock them. Kind of like, um, you know, if you're at all familiar with how Photoshop does panels in its UI. And the first thing that I went and looked for is like, oh, this is great. They have a pure JavaScript version. How do I plug it into React? And there's all the CSS and everything behind it that makes all this work. Um, but it's very much a matter of uh, it comes with nice styling and everything else. And like that was my first question is, OK, great. I've got this thing. How do I plug it into React, turn it, turn all the lights on? And thankfully, they had a version or a utility framework that said, OK, using React, here's how you turn it, how you plug it in. Otherwise, it was like, okay, I could probably figure this out on my own. But 
I don't, I, I want something that is plug and play. <laughs> and so that's kind of, kind of the route that I went. Um, and so when I'm looking at those things, I'm always kind of looking at like, how, how easy is it for me to plug it into the, the view layer that I'm running with, um, without a whole lot of extra stuff uh, applied in like the infrastructure layer, like, um, I was actually having, we were having uh, this conversation internally at work one time, Webpack came up and it's like, you know, some of us were like, oh, I don't want to have to go, go mess with Webpack today. We're not in the mood to mess with Webpack today. And I'm kind of like one of those people, like put me to Webpack and my, my day goes south immediately because I don't know, <laughs> it's, it's not like it's hard to necessarily wrap one's brain around, but anytime I have to dig into a Webpack, Webpack config is like, nope, that's the end of my, my day. Um, and so like, if I have to do a lot of work to get things in there, that's definitely like, always going to be a challenge. Um, so that always is like something I'm thinking about when I see like bootstrap or tailwind or any of these other ones is okay. Odds are I'm going to be using react. Although there's parts of me that going or that, that go like there's for certain things that's overkill. Um, and there's a bit of, there's a part of me that would like to get back to the older days, the, 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 um, I can't think of the word right off the top of my head, but the nostalgic days of let me just do divs and CSS and H, you know, HTML and CSS and no, inf no tooling, no, whatever. And just, just build it, build it in an HTML file with a CSS file there. Um, but usually I'm, I'm definitely paying attention to how easy is, are those frameworks easy to pull in and how how well do they match the idiom of the view view like framework that i'm using like does it feel like react still after i pull them in yeah that's a i i, I especially that nostalgia piece i really <laughs> that uh, sometimes I, I i'm really fighting myself against trying to go there right now because like mm -hmm. part of like noodling on this project at home is really just a way to kind of run through the current state of the art right. and current state of the art is you know not sort of using, uh, I don't know, like the browser DOM manipulator functions and all exactly. of that kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was a time where like a lot of the uh, like uh, CEP extension stuff at Adobe where mm -hmm. we were writing a lot of samples for it. Like I tended to just, I was going to write everything because it's such a basic UI. You only have so much real estate anyways. I would write all of that stuff in just like the basic JavaScript because that mm -hmm. way it's like anyone anyone theoretically should be able to grok it. Although these days I'm not sure because a lot of people do enter through the frameworks and, and never yeah. leave um, for better or for worse. I don't know. I mean, you know, so um, I think for me, like just trying to figure out like what's the current way things are typically done led me down a bunch of different paths. Mm -hmm. um, I may have mentioned to you not maybe off, off the podcast at some point, but at some at some point, I even tried this new framework called Remix, which I, I want to dig into further. Re Remix was like this, like, you think you want server and client, but what if you just mix it all up instead was my takeaway from the whole thing. And Ooh, I don't that know. That sounds interesting. <laughs> it, it was, I mean, from what I could tell, it was really interesting, but it was also like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, that's just not where I'm trying to go with this right now. Um, but it is something that I want to spend some time with uh, in the future if I can. Because I think it's an interesting way of thinking. I think their whole idea was like, we're trying to bring MVC back, model mm -hmm. view controller back to um, the sort of web apps and browser-based experiences. So I can't speak too intelligently on that right now. I, I followed their tutorial long enough to know that 
I didn't want I didn't want my server all mixed up in my front end in this particular case, although there may be a really good reason to do that and I'll learn it later. But right now I don't want to do that. So I'm not right. Um, instead, I kind of ejected from that into, OK, let's just focus on I want to build a front end mm-hmm. with create create React app and Tailwind. So mm-hmm. here, let's let's follow some footsteps here. This is this is literally my path. I was like, <laughs> OK, I want to try Tailwind because everyone says this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so then I'm going to just assume that it is amazing. and I'm just going to try it. If you go to their documentation, they're getting started has a tab that says framework guides. And it's wow, it's really it's really good uh, because what it does is it, it kind of knows the world that it lives in. So you were talking about earlier how like, well, I need to know that some of my other frameworks and dependencies are going to play well with React, for example. Mm-hmm. So they're just like, yeah, this of course it has to. And here's the guide for create React app and Tailwind together. Nice. However, <laughs> here's here's where the nice stops. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I mean, like, and no, actually, this may be nice, but oh. it, it's so like, I, I don't know. I'm, I will just put it out there. But like what they basically, if you follow the uh, the documentation and they're getting started, I'm not going to click through to that right now because I'll get distracted. But uh, <laughs> if you do, you, you go to create React app and mm-hmm. how to bootstrap a Tailwind using Tailwind with that. But there's a, a warning at the top that says, we recommend that you do not use Create React App and for for, for doing this. And I, th- something about there's a, it's harder to configure if you use Create React App. <laughs> yeah. And they believe that some of these other things provide a better developer experience. So, mm. okay, fine. Because okay. Create React App is sometimes synonymous, I think. It, it, it may feel synonymous with like literally building a React app, but that's just an opinionated way to bootstrap your React app. You don't have to use create React app, right. the CLI mm-hmm. to do it. So there are other ways. One of those ways was this thing called Veet. I believe they listed Remix in the mix, which is how I ended up starting with Remix, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one with either Webpack and or Parcel. I can't remember parcel. which. Yeah. Okay. Parcel. So um yeah, I, I don't know enough about Parcel. I know that people like it. I feel like it's like always compared to like a Webpack, I think. And for me, mm-hmm. that scares me off enough. Like maybe, and maybe it's like Parcel could be like way better than or easier to use than Webpack. I don't it know. Is. Okay, in that's my awesome. opinion, it is way it is way easier. It it's it used to be branded as zero config. I don't know if that's still the case. Um, but I I've been using it for personal projects and like if I have to pick Webpack or Parcel, I have to have a really good reason to go Webpack. Um, if parcel is usually my go-to just because I hate to borrow the Apple phrase, but it just works. Um, it's such a better experience. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's what you want, right? You don't yeah. want to spend all your time configuring this stuff just so you can, again, get rectangles to show up in the browser um, or or beyond uh, if you're exactly. better front end than me. <laughs> uh, but either way, like uh, the... I, I kind of skipped right over Parcel uh, and, you know, maybe ignorantly so, but I, I tried Remix and again, it was like, you thought you knew how to write web apps, but now here's everything different. And I was like, yeah, I mean, like, I get that. And again, like, I, I think it looks interesting. I want to mm-hmm. give it a real try, but it just wasn't like on the roadmap for what I'm trying to do here. Exactly. And so I went with Vite. And why did I pick that one? Because it immediately disappeared into the background. I nice. follow, I followed. So I'm in Tailwind CSS's getting started framework guide for using Vite, uh, React, and 
Tailwind CSS, right? So you got mm-hmm. Vite, which is again like this sort of infrastructure config, whatever. Again, I need to learn more about that, but I don't know right now because it faded into the background. And I said, thank you very much for getting out of my way. Then there, you can use React or, or Vue.js with it, I believe. And mm-hmm. again, Vue, I'm interested in, but I can, I'm functional in React already. So I just thought I'd stick with what I know for now. And then it incorporates Tailwind CSS. That's the whole point we're even talking about this, right? Exactly. I want to use, so again, in <laughs> give, order give to me pick, the CSS. <laughs> right. In order to pick one of these CSS frameworks, I had to like pick all these other things. And that, that took me a little while, actually, of trial and error and a few other things. But a lot of good learning there on the state of front end today. Some some things I definitely know I need to brush up on and or dig further into to have more informed opinions on. But for now, we're looking for this path of least resistance to yes. get to the whole the whole point of this again, which is uh, I've wanted to try this utility first framework called Tailwind CSS, which has been mm-hmm. enormously popular. If you do front end, you don't need to hear me tell you that. Um, but if you're more on the back end, you probably may have heard of it, but don't know that much about it, kind of like I have. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to something like Bootstrap, which is more component-based. Uh, and, you know, so again, I thought, well, let's try this whole um, utility first thing. And in the chat here, and I'll put this in the um, I'll put this in the show notes as well. So I'm I'm linking to this thing called uh, it's tailwindcss.com slash docs slash utility dash first. So the title of the document is utility first fundamentals. Hmm. So like, you know, that's just like a new term or newish term in CSS land that I'm not used to having really thought about before when in, in the world where it was just bootstrap, it's not like I thought of bootstrap as like component based. I just thought of it as a CSS framework that was Mm -hmm. responsive and was grid based. And that's what Mm -hmm. I cared about. So utility first fundamentals. I thought that this document helped me from I, at some point I got into Tailwind as a novice and got to a place where I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what is it making me do? I understood it to a certain extent, but why this doesn't, it felt weird and wrong in some mm-hmm. ways in the beginning, but this document talked me off the ledge and it helped me stick with Tailwind and suspend disbelief long enough to start to understand how this approach really like to start to understand why a lot of developers love it. So mm-hmm. at the top, you get a blob of uh, code and you can see like this uh, before the code comes in, there's like this little circle with a X, a red circle. And it says, we're going to basically, it says using a traditional approach where custom designs require custom CSS. And mm-hmm. so what they show you is this text, it's HTML and followed by a style tag with a bunch of CSS inside of it. Yep. The way the HTML is, um, it's a bunch of divs as everything always is, but <laughs> the way that it is all so true. styled is these classes that are, um, you know, human readable. Mm-hmm. So you have a div and, you know, like the, the, the outer div is chat notification. Mm-hmm. It's chat dash notification. So that's the whole div, the, the parent div. And then inside of that, you're going to have a class, a div with the class of chat notification logo wrapper. That's all mm-hmm. one class. And then you can see how this is going to keep going, right? Because we've all right. written CSS like this. Oh, yes. We're coming up <laughs> with these bespoke names for different parts of a div to make this component. And then you see like the, the CSS and what that turns into below. You're writing all the CSS or in reality, you're probably... A lot of times you're going to end up pulling this from a framework like bootstrap, Mm -hmm. but not always. So 
from you can tell from their opinion in this document, this is the wrong way to do things. Right. Big right? red X so, there. Big it's red like, X. Don't do this. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's move forward knowing that of course this is a biased source because it's in the Tailwind docs, but I found this to be compelling. So um, that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about it. If you go down further, you get the blue check mark and it says using utility classes to build custom designs without writing CSS. And so um, all they have here below is just a bunch of divs. It's the same sort of structure of divs, mm -hmm. but with different classes and no CSS is written in the making of this um, component. So the classes instead are what I would argue are not human readable. So like the, <laughs> the out and, and this, this will be addressed a little bit below. Right. But uh, at the outset, like that surrounding class, you remember at the top, the first example was the class was just chat dash notification. Now, what does that mean? You would have to go find it in your CSS. Mm -hmm. Rarely is that CSS just sitting in your file. Although I realize in react land, sometimes it is, but either way, it's still like not right there. You you're going to have to go look it up. And then heaven, heaven help you if it, if you're in any of my CSS files, because you're digging. <laughs> <laughs> or mine, where you're just like, okay, I don't know what. <laughs> this is just throwing things at the wall <laughs> until something works. So yeah. that, that is that is my journey with CSS is throw spaghetti at the wall, hope it sticks, and the resulting file structure mimics that. Exactly. <laughs> and then maybe if I can go start trying to delete a few things, I will. But honestly, yes. <laughs> at some point, I get too afraid to touch it. Exactly. So, uh, all right. I'm always just in amazement of people who just like can write CSS. Those people exist and they're they're phenomenal in my book. But that's that's not me. So if you if you go to the sort of using the utility classes example, again, as opposed to the one where they were kind of using the named classes and then you got to have you know CSS sitting somewhere else, you could have to go look it up, see what it does get a bunch of inheritance questions that you might have to answer as well. Mm -hmm. um, if you go down to the utility classes, again, it's just HTML. Um, and you're using classes from the framework that on their surface are not human readable, but are learnable. So like the outside class for that first div, when it was named, it was called chat dash notification. But in a Tailwind CSS sort of like utility first model, the classes are, and I'm not going to read all of them because like, this is a hurt, long list. Hurt our brains, but it starts with so classes are p six, max w dot sm, mx auto, bg white, etc. 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 So, um, you know, it, it. I can understand the bg white one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, background is white. <laughs> Although, you know, especially when you're new, good luck knowing um, right. how, to, how to write that. But yeah, that uh, and so they go through and explain what all that stuff is. But that's kind of beside the point, because this whole document's talking about the fundamentals of what utility mm -hmm. first is and why you should care. So I'll go down to the paragraph that really, again, kind of saved me from jumping off the ledge, which was um, right below that sort of explainer of all of those classes. Um, it, it reiterates, first of all, you know, and I'm reading straight from the docs. This approach allows us to implement a completely custom component design without writing a single line of custom CSS. So this, the next paragraph is the money paragraph for me. Now I know what you're thinking. <laughs> this is an atrocity. What a horrible mess. And you're right. And also these docs are right. This is me now because that's exactly what I was thinking. I was right. like, why would you do this? Uh-huh. 
And they say, yeah, back to the docks. And you're right. It's kind of ugly. In fact, it's just about impossible to think this is a good idea. The first time you see it, you actually have to try it. <laughs> Emphasis theirs. So um, and then there, there's a there's a few talking points below that I think really kind of, OK, you know, anybody can say I need to try your thing and it'll get good, I promise. But a, a few things here. Um, bullet point number one about like, you know, why this matters. Um, you aren't wasting energy inventing class names. Wow, did that resonate God. with me? Like, you know, and again, like, <laughs> yeah. they're like, no more adding silly class names like sidebar inner rapper just to be able to style a div. And I'm like, whoa, you know, I used to think of my class naming skills were like on point, but it's also like not really a skill that like if I could spend <laughs> brain power doing something else, I'd, I, I might not mind. Right. <laughs> you, you really don't want to waste 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 your your brain cells and it coming up with just the right semantically uh important phrase or or class name to describe what you're doing or if slash you always come up with like rapper and all these other things and it just yeah i this one this one hits so close to home because i think they're looking at my code when they're talking about this <laughs> it says carrie and ash comma you aren't wasting time you aren't wasting energy inventing class names exactly and and the another one that well, I think all of these really hit home. So this one, this next one hit home too, but in a, in a way that mm -hmm. took me a while to grasp, it says just simply your CSS stops growing. So if you think back to like, you know, if you have to invent a class name for every div, you know, or every component you want to make as just like, as a matter of course, you need to spell out like what that means in the CSS. So mm -hmm. like every time you invent like a new class name to style something in particular, now you're adding a new class in your CSS. Um, and, you know, it's not something that I guess I'd ever thought much of, which in some ways I always kind of felt like, well, CSS just gets giant over time and what can be done. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, apparently if this approach, they seem to think that like you can prevent that CSS bloat by using this model. So I'm kind of, you really got me interested at this point. Mm hmm. So maybe the last one, and it kind of goes hand in hand with that second point in my mind, but making yeah. changes feels safer because um, one thing that's kind of, again, easy to forget for someone who spends all their time in JavaScript land or backends, but like, you know, where JavaScript, like doing things in the global space is like, you, you don't do it, right? You really try to avoid that. Well, CSS is global. That's a point that this frame, Tailwind framework documentation mm -hmm. likes to make over and over again. And so therefore, like if you're making a change to your CSS with custom CSS or whatever, like um, in these custom classes, like, you know, again, like you just don't know, like, what else am I breaking by doing this? Or what am I accidentally inheriting, you know, by doing this? Or if I go and change something that's like higher up, you know, it just it feels really unsafe to just go in and make changes. Oh, man. So true. I, I, I mean, I've. I. I I won't say I have had literal nightmares, but I, I feel like I have of being in some CSS file, especially in cases where where like um, like maybe you're uh, you're using a solution where you, you're not in full control over this, the, the entire stack and you're trying to be very targeted about what you're 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 trying to modify because maybe it's something that you're um, tweaking for your particular use case. And like that is just like mm, finding the right little magic incantation to do to target that little bit but not affect the rest of everything else um it feels a bit like spelunking and i'm not good 
in caves. (laughs) (laughs) Especially CSS caves. Exactly. They're the worst. (laughs) Absolute worst. Cool. So, you know, those three points already kind of had me on the hook again, like, you know, where I was kind of on that fence about Mm -hmm. like, oh, man, like, how is this actually better? And then they're like, well, you're not wasting the energy inventing these bespoke class names. Your CSS isn't growing and making changes becomes safer. Again, you know, at this point, these are merely assertions by the person who wrote this. But again, like if they're willing to boldly state that, and I know this is a popular framework, like that feels like there's something here and it's worth kind of suspending disbelief to try, mm-hmm. but then, <laughs> then you might ask yourself, well, if I've got like a gajillion classes right there in, in the HTML, um, why not use inline styles instead was exactly. literally what I was kind of starting to think about. And that's like the next section of this document. They're either mind readers or Someone have talked exactly. to a lot of skeptical <laughs> developers over time. <laughs> Yes, because that was also going to be my next question is this feels a lot like inline styling, which we've all had our hands slap when we've done that one. Yeah. So so like you think, for example, like that last example, right, just the uh, just the first class that they use on that outer div is like so it's a class of P dash um, six. It, it wouldn't take much learning for you to know that that means that you're adding a padding of six on all sides. Mm-hmm. And so, again, like, you're not expected to guess your way into that. These are just conventions built by the framework. But mm-hmm. the, the fact of the matter is, once you've learned it, then you never then you know it. Right. So, OK, but I could again, I could just I could write that as an inline style. So what are the arguments against? Like, why would I want to continue with the framework versus, you know, just kind of writing my own styles right there, which again, like we've all heard, isn't the right way to do things. This looks a lot like inline styles. Like what, why is this different? Right. So here's the three talking points here, which again, um, were, um, compelling. Uh, I, I found the, the second two more compelling than maybe the first, but we'll, we'll go with the first anyways. The first one is d- designing with constraints. Now I'm all for creative constraints mm-hmm. just as a person in general, but I don't know if I'm always like, like I, I didn't, kind of come looking for frameworks because I wanted like <laughs> to be limited artificially or arbitrarily. <laughs> yeah. So let's see. I'm trying to think if that's what they mean by constraints, actually, because now that I say that I'm like, I'm thinking of constraints in iOS UI design and those are, that's not what they mean by no. constraints. So let me, let me look <laughs> that, at this. That, those oh. did give me nightmares. <laughs> yeah. Those are their own thing. Like, yeah, but like that might be what they're talking about. Let me read this real quick just to make sure. So it says using inline styles, every value is a magic number with utilities. You're choosing styles from a predefined design system, which makes it much easier to build visually consistent UIs. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess what they mean by constraints here, and this is a wild guess, but they mean like you can't just like make it up arbitrarily on the fly. So having those constraints by the system helps you just sort of Mm -hmm. like work within like a predefined like design system, which is the way you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And with that, like, I totally agree. Like, I'm, I'm glad we're not designing with iOS constraints. I mean, they're super powerful, but I, th- that's a that's a thing I don't ever want to have to do again. Um, but like <laughs> in here is like, and what really resonates with me in here is like the the using inline styles, every value is a magic number is like in JavaScript where we're, we're, it's it's hammered into us. Usually avoid your magic numbers, use constants or you use use things that have good names on them and things like that. Now, I mean, I look at P dash six and I still, I, I, the, the, the literal part of my brain says, well, that six is still a magic number. Like, but it's not really because it's part of an identifier and it's a constant defined elsewhere. Um, so I, 
their phrasing there feels a little bit like you're walking a fine line there. But I also understand that going further is like, okay, having defined paddings and defined margins and defined radii for uh, corners is way easier for me to manage when I'm thinking through my limited design skills, because not a designer, um, and to ensure that I'm staying consistent throughout the rest of the website uh, or the the visual appearance versus like if I have uh, padding colon eight picks and margin colon 12 picks and I, I'm putting that in inline styles everywhere or even sometimes in the rest of my CSS, like I have to mentally remember this is the this is my grid and this is this is what I am assigning to these kind of things is this is this is where I should be using it pixel versus 12 pixel um which then inevitably sometime down the road is like oh I need to <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be using 12 pixels here I want to change it a little bit so I think that's maybe my one argument a little bit where it's like p-6 if I want to change that I have to change that everywhere p-6 is but it's at least still tied back to something that if I misuse it and I didn't have it properly defined elsewhere, then, you know, things would start to be very obviously incorrect. Um, but yeah, I like their, their notion of like, you're, you're choosing styles from like predefined design system or like, like I would almost look at these as like Lego bricks of a sort, because we're, we're, we're more granular than a button or a menu. We're into the, the fundamentals of, margin and padding and text and things like that. But those are still useful things to pull from. Yeah. And, and that sort of aversion to magic numbers and then looking at a class name with a number in it and saying, well, how is this different is, is is like a path that I think is pretty natural for a lot of folks. Um, I think one thing that would be worth looking into past that is not only like if you need to change those numbers, like there's probably two vectors of attack there. Mm -hmm. One is, change all of the class names, which is, you know, obviously not ideal, but, and, you know, you could go do it. The other one might be, and I don't know if they allow for this or not, but there are certainly uh, various levels of configuration that they allow for so that you can go into like a, kind of like a config file, which by the way, like you get bootstrapped like a config file, uh, a Tailwind CSS config Mm. file. So I don't know if it would be in there or wherever, but like you might be able to define like what these... Like how do how are these numbers growing? Like mm, you know, yeah. Every one number here, rec, you know, is some sort of multiplier on a rem or something like that. I I, I don't know. Again, like I'm just kind of making this up right now, but I feel yeah. like I've seen like you can get some level of control over that. So when we you might be able to go in and just like not update every class, but instead yes. update what the class means. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I'm yeah looking at that, like I can see down below and I've definitely seen other frameworks that do that where it's like it's text slate 500, which I'm assuming that's probably talking about like weights and things like that. That's a little bit more abstract than saying, oh, it's a specific uh, dialed into a specific number or like space dash Y dash 0.5. I'm imagining that's line height. And that makes a little bit more sense than saying like space dash Y dash eight picks. And, you know, like then I have to come back and tweak it if I ever need to modify the line height. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I, so I, I can see where they're coming from with this being a design from constraints is because you're saying I'm not going to write a whole lot of custom CSS. I'm not injecting a lot of random looking numbers, especially if you understand the framework, you know that P-6 means this versus inline, like 
it starts to become un, non-idiomatic whenever you have these other things in there. Like, why are you putting the padding here? If you're in the framework, you understand why, how all these things play nicely together. Yeah. And so like that level of us talking about this, like is one of the reasons why I was saying like, this one feels sort of debatable on best yeah. practices. <laughs> now, I, I think that the people here are incredibly thoughtful and have done their homework on this. And like, sometimes it is nice to like have something that, like a framework that asserts an opinion. Certainly we've talked a lot about like node and express and them being unopinionated to the point where you kind of need to invent everything for your app. But like <laughs> yes. uh, in this case, like that's in a decision that you're probably, that you're signing up for if you, you know, but again, like they're arguing at this point against like compared to inline styles, which probably you weren't going to write inline styles anyways. I mean, I think True. the reason that they say why not just use inline styles is mostly like, because to someone like me, when I look at the way that they're writing their CSS classes, it feels a lot like inside inline mm -hmm. styles anyway. So I think right. probably my question is, how is this not inline styles? And they're kind of talking a little right. bit in some ways about that. So the following two bullet points in the section that they talk about, though, I think are like there's just really not much uh, not much room for debate there because mm -hmm. they're just like hard technical limitations of doing it exactly. in inline styles. So one is responsive design. Uh, you can't use media queries in inline styles. So to me, yeah. right, right there, like, okay, that that's compelling in and of itself. I wasn't going to write inline styles, but I, it, this makes sense as an argument. Mm -hmm. The other one is similarly, you can't uh, target uh, different states like hover and focus at, in inline styles. So I don't, I've never even tried to do that, but apparently, like, that's a a thing that inline styles can't do. Oh yes. So there you are. Um, if you were thinking, well, if I'm going to put all these gajillion classes in my divs anyways, I'll maybe I'll write my own styles. There's two technical limitations and one sort of best practice thing that uh, is definitely something you should consider and, and why you might pick uh, Tailwind as opposed to just kind of rolling your own um, inline. Yeah, because like both of those, I mean, unless you're you're intentionally, for whatever reason, deciding you don't want to be responsive or you don't want... Um, to target, uh, you know, a button to look different when it's pressed or what have you. Like these are these are pretty critical. It's like that that rules. Like anytime I have to do that, if I've been slightly naughty and using an inline style in there just because I'm prototyping or playing around, it's like that's the immediate the immediate kicker that says, oh, go write a go write a CSS class because this is not going to to work long term because it's always going to take uh, the, uh, the importance. And that has always been, in some ways, the bane of my existence sometimes where um, in the past, and this is many, many, many years ago, um, but where you might only, you might have very specific limited ways you can customize it. And like some ways the tools will do this is like, oh, give us a custom inline style and we'll inline it for you. And then it's like, yep, it's inlined, but then the, then it, the button background changes color because of the way they built it. And now that color no longer works or what have you. And it's always been painfully frustrating to deal with inline styles um, or worse, their product doesn't inline style and you desperately need it to go away. <laughs> <laughs> and like, there's no getting around it. That inline style wins. Yeah. So, you know, at this point, like they're having their document address all these concerns about why would you do this at all? And, you know, it kind of, instead of naming classes with these mm -hmm. sort of human readable names, but just coming together with all these like sort of little utility classes that are going to look at the beginning very much like clutter, if I'm honest, like, uh, but they have some reasons why, why you should consider doing it this way for that reason and how this is actually different than inline styles in terms of capabilities mm -hmm. and in some ways, best practices too. 
Uh, the last piece of it is just like maintainability concerns. They have a section on that, which is like, okay, so if, and which is a good question, right? So if you've got mm-hmm. like all of these different tiny little classes that kind of come together to mean like, oh, this is a card in a list of cards or whatever. Right. Um, how am I supposed to maintain that? Well, there one one argument is simply, and I don't know if it's in this document or not, but I remember reading it or watching it somewhere because there's some good uh-huh. YouTube videos by the maintainers as well on this. Um, but one sort of thing argument I've seen just out there somewhere is that in reality, if you're styling a single component, like you're not actually going to end up reusing that same, yeah. you know, sort of class, if you will, because like the idea is, let's say you got a list item in a list and then in react for everything in that sort of list in or in the array, you're going to put out a component out in the browser. Well, the reality is you only ever needed to write that, that markup with CSS once. Mm-hmm. So in some ways they were one of the arguments I've seen out there is like actually the sort of like maintainability because I'm writing it in for, for this component in different parts of my app. The reality is if you're using certain types of like dynamic frameworks, you actually, that's not really the problem you think it is, is what I've seen asserted somewhere. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, what they have on the page here is like, you can actually extract some of this stuff into like, um, let me see here. Repeated, so they said like, I'm just going to read this for a second so I don't get it wrong, but um, the biggest maintainability concern when using utility first approach is managing commonly repeated utility combinations. Mm -hmm. This is easily solved by extracting components and partials and using editor and language features like multi-cursor editing or simple loops. Okay, so the second one, that's like pretty low tech, but okay, fine. So <laughs> yes, I can. I'll I mean, take it, but sorry, yes. <laughs> but the loops one was kind of my the argument I was just making a second ago, which yeah. is like, you know, if you're going to have one component and it's going to be looped over in an array, you're only ever writing it once anyways. Right. Exactly. The multi-cursor thing, sure, whatever, but we all knew that. I think yeah. um, one of the other things that they give you on top is like this extracting components and partials um, where... I mean, I want to say like this gives you the ability to almost do like this sort of bespoke names of combinations. Um, again, this this kind of gets to the edge of like, I certainly in my usage don't need this right now, but I think like they do give you that escape patch of saying, well, if you have a certain sort of combination, you can give that combo a name and then be able to refer to that throughout the framework. I think that's yeah. what they're saying. Well, and like if I were looking, so I know like their examples here, they're using Vue. Um, which is great, but um, speaking as someone who who knows React um, and, and can talk React in my sleep or write React in my sleep, um, like if I were doing this, I would, you know, that's where I would convert this into a React component. But instead, like my typical pattern with a component-based CSS framework or writing my own custom CSS is, you know, then I've gone through is I've, I've, I've got my react button, let's just, or card, let's use card. And then I have all the custom CSS that goes along with it. And it's very much, uh, you know, attached to, um, that this is specific div or that function that it's using, but it's, you know, that single name thing that, that we talked about. And, um, so all of my React components come with their corresponding CSS that tends to grow over time because you find it, oh, no, I need to add this other little icon and that changes the list items that I'm generating. And, you know, it all it all, it all gets um, a little bit painful. So that tendency to build a component is still totally valid. Like ultimately, these things are turning into cards and buttons and list items that I'm reusing throughout the rest of my application. But they're also, I think, what Tailwind is is asserting 
is that I can build all of these things out of these um, individually or uh, or subatomically reusable pieces, so to speak. That also means that I don't have to go to that that pain of writing custom CSS inside of each one of my components either, which to me is is really intriguing because sometimes like my comp- <laughs> again this this is me probably saying speaking about how bad my code is, um, but <laughs> like it's very common for me as I think back through my React components is like the component itself is fairly short like there's not a lot of complexity going on there. The CSS, on the other hand, <laughs> dear me, you know, you're 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 going to go blind looking at the CSS because it's an incomprehensible mess or what have you, um, or it's because you know, well, for whatever reason, you've got you're you're trying to dis- uh, generate, say, this row that has four or five things in it, and you've got a different CSS class for each one of these. They all mean very specific things, but you have to go look at the CSS to understand what they're actually doing. But that CSS is in a different file because I'm importing it into my JavaScript. It's not inline in my JavaScript. So there's a million different, you know, it's a maintainability nightmare um, summarizing that up versus here is like, even if I've extracted it into a component, which I would assert is a best practice, I can look at all of this stuff. And assuming I know the framework, I understand what it's visually trying to accomplish without having to go anywhere else, um, Mm. which... I can I, I can really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, I mean, and that's the thing I was like, once you kind of initially get past what look like hieroglyphics in your classes on a div, like it's just sort of mm-hmm. like, what is all of this sort of just like numbers and letters? Um, you start to realize there's there's really not that much to it. You just kind of need to remember the conventions. Like, for example, P dash one would be a, a padding of one and I got to say, I don't know what the one stands for by default. I'm going to assume it's a rem, but I don't know. Um, but then like if it was PY dash one, well, that's uh, oh, check me on this. It's that's the horizontal padding on either side. Um, you and PX dash one is going to be the top and bottom, I believe. And you can also control for each side. I think it's like, you know, you'd have to look it in the docs, but I think mm-hmm. it's like PT for top, you know, and that kind of thing. Once you kind of get used to that, I mean, it's just literally, okay, what does the shorthand mean? Once you've kind of taken that in, there's not really that much of a learning curve to that part of it. It's just kind of mentally mapping what the shorthand means to things that you already know in CSS anyways. Right. I would say that in addition to the, so, so far we've talked about like the utility first fundamentals and just this Mm -hmm. docs page. I'll, I'll mention one other thing in the favor of Tailwind. And again, it might sound like I'm like really evangelizing Tailwind, but I'm actually still sort of just kicking the tires on it myself. Um, but I'm finding the more I get into it, the more I'm convinced. Um, but so far we talked about utility first fundamentals. Like why mm-hmm. would you choose this versus something like um, say Bootstrap, which is actually going to give you a bunch of those named classes that you'll right. then use and then extend with your own CSS to, mm-hmm. to customize if you go that far. Um, I often don't, but um, you know, so the utility first approach just means that, again, you know, you're not having to invent all those class names and then go look them up later. Your CSS isn't growing, which I want to talk about in just a second. That's kind of the final point. Mm-hmm. Making changes feel safer, um, which is always a welcome thing, especially for someone like me that doesn't spend just all their time in CSS. Um, and again, in compared to inline styles, uh, you know, from their point of view, they're saying like, well, there's two things you can't even do with inline styles. One is responsive design and one is like states. 
So, right. uh, you know, and they have answers for maintainability if you find all of the sort of just little class names up front to be off-putting. Although I'd say like, you're better off like in the beginning suspending disbelief and just going with that for a while mm-hmm. don't start trying to name everything because right <laughs> that that's at first i was going to do that and then i kind of figured like now i'm kind of fighting the framework a little there would be good reasons to do that but i, I feel like that's probably like an escape hatch for s- yeah. specific circumstances and i i don't know enough about this framework yet to feel like i'm there okay so in terms of the css like that's just like the argument for utility first i find a number of those things convincing enough that i want to try this out for a while and see if mm-hmm. it really holds up and a lot of developers think it does, so presumably they all they all know something. They are, they can't right. all be wrong. <laughs> so I want to go down this path. The other thing that I found really interesting about this framework in development mode is they have a JIT or just in time compiler for the CSS that at least on my small project is lightning fast. So one of the concerns with pulling in something like and again I don't know the current state of Bootstrap, but like in the past, like if you were going to pull in a dependency of Bootstrap, you're pulling in a lot of CSS, a yeah. lot of which you may not use. There could be ways to get around that, but you know, by default, you're not getting around it. You're pulling in the whole framework, and that's something that's got to be loaded every time someone loads to your page. So instead, with this just-in-time compiler, like literally does what it sounds like, where every time you kind of like hit save and reboot the server, it's recompiling only the CSS from the framework that you're using and putting it into a file. So instead of <laughs> nice. all of it by default and then you try to whittle away at it, it's only what you need by default and it's happening even during development mode uh, and it's happening super fast. I just, that's not something I knew I wanted until I was doing it. And then I'm like, oh, I feel great about this because like, yeah, it, it's not pulling in tons of CSS that I'll never ever use. It's only well, grabbing what I need. And like for me, because uh, that 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 harkens back to something we were doing um, uh, at work um, in the last few months, just a, as a demo project. Is like there was a library we were using, and it was saying like, okay, for development purposes, you can pull in this module, and the majority of it is like this is very CSS heavy, like that it's pulling in every single component and everything like that, and it. Um, on, uh, on my M1 Mac, it takes a second, um, for it to figure that out in the browser to start rendering content. Like, and that doesn't feel like a long time until you're doing, you know, really rapid save, switch over, look at the tab. No, that wasn't right. I want to switch it over to the save, look at the tab. And then every one of those is like taking a second to, to, for the browser to parse through. And that's not great. Um, but then it's like, you also know that you're setting yourself up in the future for this really annoying process of, okay, now I need to go through and identify all the things that I used myself and trim it down because I want to build something that's production ready. And inevitably in that process, I will miss one or two. And suddenly I'm looking at a page that has incomplete styling or the, or the button or the component is not working correctly. And it's like, okay, which, which dependency did I forget in the CSS or whatever. And it's like, you just know you're setting yourself up for trouble down the line. And I hate doing that <laughs> or tech debt. You know, I, I don't like doing that if I don't have to. And so like in this regard, that would be like a huge selling point to me right out the bat is like, even during development, not only is that faster iteration, which I is great for me, but I know I'm not setting myself up for a, a painful production or session to get to production when I have to go and rip out all the stuff that I'm not using. So to me, like that's a huge win right there. Yeah. And, and oftentimes don't you, 
even if you as the developer know you want to go back and do those optimizations, <laughs> like you're not going to be given the time. Nope. <laughs> so if the framework is like only what you need from the beginning, mm-hmm. like problem solves, right? Like right. That's, that's amazing. Like, you know, so I, I don't know. For me, like that feels like we're, it's a framework in some ways, if I'm understanding how it works correctly, is almost like thinking about the performance of your deployed projects in ways that like you might not get a chance to do, even if you personally care about it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have to go back and like you said, you might have to manually figure that out or theoretically build up op- automa- automations around that again, which we, do we ever get time to do that? Oftentimes not. So I, I don't know. There's something about that that I like. It's a, um, we talked a little bit about earlier, just like the state of developer experience, just a very minimal level. But like, this is one thing that maybe I haven't thought as much about until literally right now, but is like frameworks that are kind of setting you up for uh, kind of like being optimized by default, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, for example, like thinking through like a lot of these CSS frameworks because of you know the state of mobile development for the last 12 to 14 years like and like i don't know that they all started out where they were mobile first but they got there pretty quick and so the idea is like by default like everything that you do in in this framework um tailwind and in bootstrap by the way like you're you're on the small screen size by default whatever mm-hmm. the xs would have been right and then when you want to address a larger screen size that's what you do um so you know, mobile first is like one of those kinds of like use UX optimizations. But I'd say another one in terms of performance, which is something yeah. you feel but you do not see, the frameworks um, maybe haven't always like made that a first class citizen because the expectations eventually you'll go into sort of getting ready for prod and you'll you'll kind of optimize all the things. But of course, you don't often get the time to do that because of business constraints. So if the frameworks can kind of like watch your back on, on that front. One, it makes development faster, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, but also like just prevents like from having to go through and do all that. Like, I guess, what do you call it? Like tree shaking where you go yeah. in and like kind of figure out here's all the parts of the CSS <laughs> framework I'm not using. Let's get that out of there. So we're not like shipping it every time to everybody that loads this page. Well, yeah. And I think that's the interesting, an interesting thing is like, I, I don't know about you, but I've almost internalized it to this point just throughout the majority of my career is the optimization step, even if you have it automated, like, you know, Webpack and let it go tree shake everything out or whatever tools you're using, go tree shake it out, then minify that, that, you know, turn it all into production ready code. Um, I'm, I have internalized the notion that will be slower than dealing with the unoptimized performance or the unoptimized version because all of that op- optimization takes significant time. So like no one wants to go hit save and then wait for 10 seconds or 30 seconds for Webpack to go finish its thing or or any of these tools. I, I'm, I'm railing on Webpack and it's not really totally Webpack, but, and then see your page refresh. Like that sucks. Like at that point, I'll take the second re- uh, of processing time in the browser to avoid that step and go totally unoptimized versus in here is like tail like this is saying is like there that doesn't have to be reality there could be a path if you put in sufficient thought in terms of all the tooling all the stuff that supports your framework or your uh view library or whatever other thing that you're building you could have it built getting you on the happy path from the start doing fast optimization 
um, which is kind of like why I've why in a way I've switched to um, one of my personal projects. I use ES Build now instead of like Webpack or Parcel. One, it's written it's not written in JavaScript. It's I forget which language it's in, but be- precisely because it's super quick, and because it's super quick, it can do a lot of that stuff for me. And now I can be in like you know a production mode regardless because it's not impacting my development time while I'm iterating. And that feels like something, I don't know if we internalized it by default because that's just how the things, how, how things were, but it feels like that's maybe something that we should re reevaluate more often. It's like, can we build our tooling and our frameworks in a way that they're optimized by default, but they're optimized in a performant way that they're not getting in the way of iteration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just kind of like a, you and me, our history, our, our shared history with a number of other people is like what always comes to mind for me is uh, the initial pass at the Adobe XD documentation and, and running <laughs> yes. that build set or those build tools. Oh my. That was like the classic like XKCD scenario where we could be out like literally doing sword fights on office chairs <laughs> in the hallway. And we had a great excuse because we were waiting on those, the documentation to compile. Because, mm-hmm. uh, like, I think at some point uh, it got to, you know, something close to like five minutes. Yep. Um, and again, like, you know, that's just one of those things where, you know, that that's like a pretty fun, funny thing to laugh about now. But when you know time, you have to man. wait that long, like, it's just impossible to get much done. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and it also... I, I find anyways, if I know I'm going to hit a wall like that, it'll sort of stop me from mm-hmm. trying some things, you know, it diminishes my enthusiasm for being experimental and well, and frankly, even just, you know, pushing forward because it's like, you know, oh, I know it's going to be a five minute or whatever. And like for the, for the docs, especially and I, and usually my, like when I've lived with Webpack, it's usually never been that long, but it's been like 30 seconds or whatever. So you either end up in this, well, I'll put it off. I'll put it on my to-do list and maybe I'll, I'll get to it at some point. Or you start batching these things together because I want to save that mm-hmm. time and inevitably cause myself more grief because I wasn't thinking all that through. And, you know, now it's like, okay, well, that didn't work. Now what all the things do I have to back out to actually get the result? Yeah, that which one do? of these changes caused yeah. that problem? <laughs> oh, I love it. Carrie, you've, uh, sorry, sorry, just a second. I'm I'm just taking a quote down so I can remember to use this in my life. <laughs> it diminishes my enthusiasm for being experimental. I love that. I'm going to, Next time someone says, hey, what do you think about this? I'm going to be like, well, it sort of diminishes my enthusiasm for being experimental, but what the hell? Let's do it. Uh, yeah, you got got to pick and choose the places to use that one. I'm yeah, that's su- true. I'm honestly surprised that one fell out of my, my brain um, at, at this time on a Sunday. <laughs> no, I'm going to, I'm only going to use it when I'm ordering a meal. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> So I'm just going to go with what I always order. Thanks. This exactly. new stuff diminishes my enthusiasm for being experimental. <laughs> uh, that describes my ordering behaviors in restaurants perfectly to a T. Um, it's like, no, I I, I want to go with what I know. Um, I'm not going to be experimental today. <laughs> Love it. Well, hey, speaking of food, we should uh, go get some. It's a Sunday night. Um, and uh, I don't know. We This is great. I'm, I'm glad that you're willing to walk down this sort of path with me through CSS 
framework land. And yeah, it's been it a sure, blast. It sure required some stage setting, but I got to <laughs> say, like, that's kind of the point, you know, like mm-hmm. we <laughs> I'm often just amazed at anyone who can like get into front ends these days from from scratch yeah. because there's so many layers to it that sometimes I find that while I know I could do a lot of this stuff, it's just the amount of like la- layers of frameworks I'm going to have to learn to to do something well uh, feels a little bit heavy. Yeah, it can feel super daunting, and it's like to the point of oh, this is super cool. But then you suddenly realize the cliff, you know, you want to try something and you suddenly realize the cliff it's going to take to experiment with this thing. And it's like, eh, I don't have the energy for that. Versus if you can have something that you don't have to think, like it's not that you don't have to learn it, but if you don't have to think super detailed and you can get going and see results quickly, that's motivating for me versus this, you know, sudden cliff of, oh, I'm going to have to set all this stuff up and it's going to be, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour, four hours or whatever, how long it is before I see anything on the page. That's hard for me to get to overcome and to actually push through that. It's one thing if that's your job, but it's another thing like I want to just play around, have some fun, experiment and then see the results of that. And 30 minutes from now isn't going to work for my brain. A hundred percent. That's totally been my life for the last, like, in my spare time, uh, what little I have for hacking uh, in the last couple of weeks. But I feel like I've gotten to a good place. And if, if any of this is at all sounded, you know, overtly negative about any particular thing, it's it's definitely not. Um, for me, what I'm finding is I'm getting a lot of traction with, mm-hmm. you know, so if you're following along, listening here, like, go check out the tail, Tailwind yeah. CSS docs, look at the uh, uh, framework guides inside of the getting started, and uh, particularly the one that um, I'm I'm using at the moment is the the Vit, so that's V I T E. I assume that is Vit, could be Vite or Vite. I don't know, um, but either way, uh, <laughs> who's depends to say? on your on your on your um, accent, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so go check that one out. Uh, I found it was like really nice to get started with. If you're already comfortable with React, um, again, Vit will just like disappear into the background. Uh, and I'm sure there's more to be discovered there. But for now, what I'm finding is like just developing a front end project, like it just kind of gives me all the niceties. And um, then I can just focus on the React, and which I'm generally comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And then from there, learning the Tailwind CSS, which, you know, as we discussed at length today is like a different way to think about things. But utility first is is growing on me. Um, and I think I'm going to stick with this one for a while. Yeah, I, I, I definitely it's 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 on my list of, of ones to dig into because I, I I'm seeing the value of it, too. And I'm even thinking back in some cases like I, I'm I'm shaming a lot of my CSS because it deserves to be shamed. Um, but there have been times where and I'm sure we have all done this where um, you we've taken notions of this, especially when it comes to Flexbox, because I hate Flexbox. I, I love that what Flexbox can do. I hate writing Flexbox CSS. And so I will have often wrote utility CSS classes just for Flexbox. And this is just taking it that next level further. It's like, no, don't stop at Flexbox. Do it for everything else too. 
um, which is definitely intriguing to me. <laughs> Carrie, it warms my heart a little bit to hear you like <laughs> saying that you hate Flexbox because like, I got to say like a lot of what I learned from Flexbox in the initially was from you. And I always thought like, wow, here's a person who like just feels like Flexbox is like definitely the answer to all of their problems. But now that I know <laughs> it wasn't like that for you either, I feel like so oh, good no. about that. Solely by necessity. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, look, uh, Carrie, uh, I think we've gone on long enough at this point. At, God, this was a lot of fun after a few weeks yes. away. And especially after dealing with all the CSS stuff, I'd rather be scripting. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'd Rather Be Scripting. If you love scripting, terminals, Z shell, JavaScript development, and other random technology tangents as much as we do, we'd love to hear from you. You can always leave a review on your preferred podcasting platform, or you can reach out to us via the social links on our website, I'dRatherBeScripting.com. Until next time, I'd rather be scripting. <laughs>